0: Good morning. Um, I'm Douglas Jacoby. It's my pleasure to be able to give the message today. Uh, I'll begin as usual with a little report from around the world, and then we'll continue in our Hebrew series. And today is on Hebrews 7, 8, and 9. I will also uh, give more of an explanation. Tom uh, Brown mentioned last week that my wife and I would be going to Europe for a short while which is true, uh, but let me explain what that means and what a short while is. And then after that, we'll get into the message. I think since uh, last time I was with most of you here, um, I've been in Africa a few weeks back, not only in uh, South Africa, but also in Madagascar, which is right there on the side, uh, which is really cool because the preacher and his wife, they're self-supported. They don't take any money from the church. Uh, have become new students in our program here in Georgia, which is very encouraging. Had a chance also to go to Malawi. Had to cancel it last year because I was in Cape Town and I was in bed. I was very sick, but they were very patient. They wanted me to go there and to speak on the second coming. They'd been uh, listening to my video sermons, and so all I had to do was adapt three uh, from first and second Thessalonians, and we had a great time there. Also... As I know you've heard, there have been a number of teachers in our fellowship recently appointed around the world, uh, quite a few in Africa as well, and uh, the International Bible Teaching Ministry will be able to fly almost all of these guys uh, to a teaching conference, which will take place in a few weeks, about which I'm very excited. December. January, um, I was in Memphis. Not Memphis, the original Memphis, which is in Egypt, but I mean the one near Mississippi and Arkansas. That was a great. I was there five years earlier as well. Had a chance to teach the church on uh, principles of Bible studies so it's fresh, not boring, and practical. I got to preach as well from First Peter. But the, to me, the highlight was the camp. It's always the campus ministry part. And um, at University of Memphis, there are a couple of the members work there, but they don't actually have any students there. But they decided to really go for it. We had an auditorium. It was very well attended. Half the audience were... Students and professors from the University of Memphis, which really encourages me, because that's the kind of thing I'm hoping I'll be able to do um, in Scotland. That topic was uh, on science, and we talked a lot about Genesis. If you're here today, and I know that most of you who are university students will be here in the second service, not the first service, which is for the really committed people. Um, If you want a, a book that explains why we don't try to use genesis 1 to 11 as a science book but what it actually means you'll get a free copy today if you come to the book area and also i've got 44 free copies of our book on mormonism as well for students university students so that's january that's february um i'll be heading also to uh, pennsylvania march san antonio for that conference myrtle beach to see an old friend who actually um, isn't that old. He's only 70, but we'll get together. And uh, then we have another AIM session. In April, I'll be in China, except for, obviously, with the coronavirus, the Western Airlines have canceled all the flights. So that's been canceled, moved to the end of the year, I think. Uh, And still maybe the Philippines, depending on how many more people are affected there. If you're like me, you have an app on your phone that gives you the current number of infected and uh, the current number of dead, and I do keep an eye on that. When I was in Malawi, I added something fun to the end of a presentation. I did a 90-minute kind of world report, kind of region by region, worldwide. How are we doing? What are the good points? What are the bad parts? What's good, bad, and ugly? How are we really doing? At the end, I wanted to end on a lighter note. And so uh, with deadpan, you know, a very straight face, I talked about what happens beyond the earth. And I asked them if they recognized that planet. And some did, and some of you should. And what is it? Well, it's Mars, which is the most popular planet these days for some reason. And uh, I said, if you look very carefully, can you see that little thing there? Yeah, you know, we have a church there, and it's growing, and, you know, that's really encouraging. Well, about an hour later, one of the sisters comes up to me. She says, we really have a church on Mars? <laughs> and I said, well, and then I realized suddenly, no. But that is kind of the next cool place to go, and probably we will, (laughs) right? I mean, I actually believe that. But that was fun. (laughs) Uh, Our biblical training program, the Athens Institute, or ASOM, uh, met uh, recently, right? First of February, and that was a blast. There were a dozen of us there to learn, and also we had our friends Roma and Hanta Radriano Velona, from Madagascar. In Madagascar, all the names are long, see? And they live in Antananarivo. I told some of you before, they just call it Tana because it's a lot easier. But it was very encouraging. The teaching program includes, um, it's spread over three years and includes those units. Um, I'm I'm going through old AIM things in our house as as we're downsizing and packing and deciding what to throw away. It's so hard. But I found all these first edition AIM classes, DVDs. So I think I'm going to be bringing those in soon. If you want some free classes, you'll have those. It's also an honor for me today uh, to present uh, to our brother, Matt Cheer, a diploma. He's the most recent graduate. And Matt is actually not well today. He's home, but that's okay. I'm still going to uh, give some honor because he's persevered through the program, even with various twists and turns. One of our best students, a man who really loves God. Uh, Matt is a great fellow, if you, get to, if you know him. If, if not, meet him and ended, And that is a photograph I took with my phone of the diploma. Biblical tours, uh, yes, we had one a few weeks back uh, in Israel, which was great. And there are three I'm working on right now, as I end the intro to my message here. Uh, Turkey is coming up, we've got a good group coming there. So many biblical cities are in Turkey, and it's beautiful, and there aren't many tourists. And then a year from now, we have Israel again. And then later that year, the prison journey of Paul, Malta, Sicily, Italy. If you're interested, just sign up for my newsletter, and you'll get it. Okay. Uh, Scotland. For the last 10 or 12 years... My wife and I have been trying to figure out what to do. We thought we're too young to be put out to pasture, though we're clearly not middle-aged anymore. But could we go somewhere? And we were always thinking, and sorry, if you were here in the uh, senior Christians class on Wednesday, you're hearing this again. But we want people to know because it involves North River. But for 10 or 12 years, we've been thinking, could we not go somewhere? Because we spent so many years outside the United States, especially my wife, who's not even American, and it seemed that, well, either we'll move somewhere permanently, then we're saying goodbye to North River, or we'll go somewhere for three months, then come back for three months, then go. I mean, for me, that would be totally fine, but for my wife and for sane people, that would be totally crazy. <laughs> Having two or three, yeah, you know, that would be really crazy. And then it hit us when we were in Scotland a few weeks ago. We could just make a temporary move. So we'll still have a residence here. Um, if, you're, if you're new to New to Geography, British Isles, United Kingdom, the parts that are colored in, Ireland's a different country. Here's Great Britain. Great Britain is Wales and England and Scotland, and there's Northern Ireland. And there's Edinburgh right there. Edinburgh, Scotland, beautiful land. It's got sheep, it's got cities, it's got lots of great universities. it's a truly an amazing place to be, one of our favorite cities in Europe. So uh, short-term, we'll be there for five years. We'll come back. Uh, I'll come back, I guess, right before I turn 65 or 66 or whatever it is. Yeah, 65. Uh, yes, we could do this maybe in our 70s, but who knows what health will be like. You could be healthy as a horse one day, and what happens next week? I mean, yeah, your life can change so quickly. But that's, that's where we're going. For my wife, who has lived, we've been uh, two Christmases in Australia, we've had, well, the three Christmases we lived in Sweden, and most of the other Christmases, at least after 1989, we're all in the U.S., but for her, we had Christmas with her family uh, just recently. It was really the first time she's done that in 35 years, and we think it's time to to be over there. We'll be less than three hours away. We have one living parent, and that's Vicky's mom, who's 85, and in good health so far. But we're very encouraged uh, to be close, because see, here's Edinburgh, and that's where a lot of the family live. They live, that's Edinburgh, that's where family are, and we also have some more in the middle of the country. London's way down at the bottom. In London, uh, if you're from London, you're sophisticated. It's kind of the opposite of the US. The South is considered posh and the North is considered a bit backward. (laughs) Every country does that. Um, Great access to Europe and Africa, where I spend a lot of time and frankly a lot of money, because getting there from the US, it just costs a lot more. Uh, Airfares are less than half, very encouraging. And also the Middle East, uh, because uh, very harsh laws have been uh, put into, have been enacted in many Middle Eastern countries last year. Are now requiring preachers if you're going to preach on Sunday you have to have a theology degree so my friends are scrambling over there and I think we can help them I and mean, they have to get the degrees but we can give them support uh, we can, I can visit I can speak and teach and I think we'll be spending a lot more time there you can see Europe it's not that big as a continent but boy it's got over 30 different countries there's Edinburgh again it's not going anywhere okay now zooming in and that puts us near so many places um, uh, two or three months ago, a brother in Albania, a tiny country right here, asked if I could just swing through uh, this year. This is before we realized we were moving. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, if I'm in the neighborhood of Albania, I'll come. It's, it's one of the smallest countries in Europe. It's a Muslim country. I, I've taught there a couple of times. But I, I'm able to tell him now, hey, we're going to be around for five years. It's actually really easy because it's only a few hours away. Even getting to the Middle East, most of those places are only a four- or five-hour flight. Very close compared to the U.S., where you have to go 15 hours on a nonstop, and then, you know, it takes about a day. And also, we think that for us, as older Christians, in a large church, a large church family and a large church with many mature Christians, many mature believers— it's quite easy actually to kind of blend in or fade in or come and go or not be challenged. I don't know, just get established in routines that aren't particularly challenging. And honestly, in a church with so many great programs and opportunities, things to do, uh, I mean, people give you the benefit of the doubt. That, oh, you must, if we don't see you around, you must be involved in that program or this program. I mean, there are people who would be at this service today who are in the restoration of the heart weekend. They're meeting today. So we give benefit of the doubt, and we realize that, well, we realize that it gets easier and easier as we get old to find legitimate reasons not to be so plugged in. Frankly, in a church of fewer than 40 members, Edinburgh, there's nowhere to hide. You know, I mean, Vicky and I don't show up. We're not there to lead or we're not, this is not a church, a staff position. We're just there to support. But if we're not there, that affects their attendance pretty significantly. It's a step of faith. We we want to do that. We don't want to wait until we're too old to do that. And we're encouraged in the feedback from Scotland and from friends in the UK where we planted the church uh, back in 1982. Friends all around the world, phone calls, the texts, and the emails have been extremely encouraging. And for many of you, you found out in the newsletter, um, thank you for your strong support too. So that is the update on the International Bible Teaching Ministry. A word about AIM and our most recent graduate. There's another one in Jamaica as well. And then also about our transition, which we're really happy about. We'll still have a residence in Cobb County. We're going to buy an apartment. Uh, we'll drop by a few times a year. Um, and we'll always remember you. But we'll come back. It's only for uh, a limited time. All right. You're ready to dig into Hebrews. If you are, then I am. I was asked to, to cover Hebrews 7, 8, 9. I don't actually think that the leadership group meant we had to go through every verse. But the idea was your message should come from there. On the other hand, since this series spans a couple months, and because Hebrews only has 13 chapters, I will share a little bit about each of those chapters. And then we'll get into uh, our, our text, our focus. In Hebrews 7, we learned about a new priesthood. A priesthood of a fellow named Melchizedek who's really popular, particularly in cult groups um, and among those who like to speculate because he only makes one cameo appearance in Genesis 14. I'll be doing the communion message at, at the end of my message from Genesis 14. We'll get there in a moment. And then he's referred to in the psalm about the Christ, the messianic psalm, Psalm 110, the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New And then he's mentioned eight other times in Hebrews. Who is this guy? Well, we'll we'll go through that in in a moment. But the, the writer's reasoning is that we have a high priest. It's Jesus. Jesus is like Melchizedek for reasons we'll explain in a few minutes. And therefore, we don't need an earthly priesthood. The early church had no priesthood. They didn't use that terminology. Not until... Uh, maybe 250 A.D. when some leaders kind of liked to be called priest. It was the development of a specialized class, a clergy class. Denominations don't do very well resisting that. And so that doctrine of the spectator, the doer and the observer, the spectator, the participant, the holy person and the just average Joe, that doctrine is very hard to hold off, to fight. But there are no priests anymore And by the 4th century, and after that, a full-blown clergy and laity, laity is the the people, those who aren't in the ministry, so to speak, um, that system developed, and it was with fairly catastrophic effect. And even at the end of the Middle Ages, with the roots of Protestantism and with the Protestant Reformation starting in the 1500s, progress was made, but still there's clergy in almost all groups. Well, there are no earthly priests now. I don't mean to offend you if you come from a faith tradition where you call someone priest or father, but I would just encourage you to read the New Testament and see what the Bible says about that and certainly read Hebrews. Then the next chapter, Hebrews 8, talks about the new covenant. It's a comparison of the old with the new. The old covenant which people entered at birth and they had never chosen it or decided on that relationship with God under Judaism, but they had to kind of grow into it. Now, the new covenant is quite different. There are lots of passages in the Old Testament that predict there'll be an extension of Judaism will develop that there will be a new faith, a new law, a new priesthood, a new covenant. So we're not really a separate religion from biblical Judaism. We're an extension of it. And that new covenant will be written on the heart, The motivation will be in the heart, Psalm 40, verse 8. Whereas in the old covenant, you entered as a baby. In the new covenant, you can't become a Christian as a baby. Because you have to have your own faith. And you have to have your own will, your own decision. And that's why in the New Testament, they didn't baptize babies. It says in Hebrews 8, quoting Jeremiah 31, that people won't have to be taught to know the Lord. They all know me from the least to the greatest because when you become part of the new covenant, that new arrangement with God, you're doing it willingly. Rebirth is not something that happens invisibly, mystically. Uh, when you're too young to say no, it's something you walk into eyes wide open as a person mature enough to do so. Every Christian is a priest. Every Christian's invested as a son or daughter of God. As for Hebrews 9, we're doing pretty well here. We could just keep going through James and First Peter, but I'll stop in a moment. We learn that there's a temple in heaven. Yes, there was a temple in Jerusalem that was still standing. When the Hebrew writer penned his letter, it was still there. And he refers to the activities of the priesthood, the Jewish priesthood. However, soon, probably two years later, that temple was destroyed by the armies of Rome. Rome. Vespasian and then his son Titus, who took over. Not Titus from the New Testament, different person. Now certainly when it comes to temples, we can appreciate many aspects of traditional religion. If you were brought up in a high church environment, like me, you like the smell of candles. You found stained glass and quiet and the music, the hymns, very inspiring. Well, that's one thing, but theology is another. I mean, we can have some great traditions, but is our theology from the Bible, and are we living according to the word? I've just finished a uh, 40-lesson series, Sermon on the Mount, and the way Jesus ends up, it's his most famous body of teaching. He ends up reminding them that it's a narrow road, that false prophets will try to talk you out of this, as a result of which you will be saying, Lord, Lord, I thought I was saved on the judgment day, but you won't be, and the only way to be saved is to build your life on the word of God. He ends the Sermon on the Mount with a parable, and then the final two verses, the crowd just goes, wow, they're amazed, and we should be amazed, but Jesus expects obedience. If the new temple's in heaven, then we don't have a temple down here. There's no temple. There's no shrine. Even the beautiful buildings on this esteemed campus of North River, they're not holy places. Now, I I agree, yeah, you wouldn't bring a cheeseburger in the auditorium. First, it's against the rules. Secondly, you know, it's uh, how come you only got one for yourself? You know, it's kind of rude. (laughs) But you also wouldn't do it, I understand, because this is where we sing and pray and get into the word. It would feel kind of inappropriate. I get that. But technically, there is no holy place, there are no more holy times. Every day is equal, there are no more holy people, we're all holy, and there are no more holy objects, like censers and altars and so forth. And obviously, I'm not coming out and saying it, I probably should, probably most churches today resemble more Old Testament Judaism than New Testament Christianity. They've tried to kind of rehabilitate all these things from the old system that the Hebrew writer says we don't actually need them anymore, we have something better. And now we come to our text. Hebrews 7, and I will be reading just parts of this. He's been mentioned in the previous two chapters, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a king in Jerusalem, which is obviously not yet an Israelite city, since there are no Israelites as such. This is a time of Abraham, centuries earlier. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God, El Shaddai, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. Basically, there was a small war. Abraham uh, has family who get abducted. He goes after them with over 300 soldiers from his own household. They cover an enormous distance. On the way back from that battle, it was the battle of the five kings against the four, Abraham meets Melchizedek. Melchizedek, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Melech is king. Tzedakah is Righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace, because shalom, shalem, same same letters. He's without father or mother genealogy. Doesn't mean that Melchizedek was not born of mortal man. It means that his birth is not recorded. And normally with a priesthood, you have to establish your lineage, your pedigree. For Melchizedek, we don't know anything about his father or mother or his ancestors. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Not saying he lived forever, though that was a tempting speculation. Just that we don't read about his birth and death. But resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. The Hebrew writer argues that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Because when Abraham comes back, he meets Melchizedek. And Abraham bows down to Melchizedek and gives him tribute. He respects him as his superior. He gives him that honor. And the Hebrew writer will say that... Melchizedek is at a higher level than Abraham. And therefore, Abraham's great-grandson, Levi, from whom the Jewish priesthood comes, Abraham, Isaac, his son, Jacob, his son, Levi, Levi was one of Jacob's 12 sons and one daughter. And so Levi was, in a sense, in Abraham. And therefore, through Abraham, Levi actually Paid 10%, he gave a tithe to Melchizedek. It's a very interesting argument. And then he says, he mentions again the Levitical priesthood, and he says there's another kind of priesthood, the order of Melchizedek. Now, he's, he's not saying we need priests in the order of Melchizedek. That's kind of what I guess the Latter-day Saints have done. I think he's simply reasoning in a way that would be persuasive to his readers. So it's not in the order of Aaron, who was from Levi. It's the order of Melchizedek. Because you have the 12 tribes, right? Levi is the tribe of priests. And you've got Judah, the tribe of kings. Now, which one does Jesus come from? Judah, because he's descendant of David. Well, if you're from Judah, you can't be a priest. Just like if you're from Levi, you cannot be a king. But Jesus somehow is both. He is, because we would never trust on earth, you wouldn't trust people with secular political power and with religious power. (laughs) We know what happens when when that horrible combination occurs. But Melchizedek is somehow outside the system entirely. He's not Jewish. He doesn't fit into the system. But he's there. What are you going to do with him? Just an amazing fellow. And the writer argues that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Where does he get that from? Psalm 110. Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is David speaking. A descendant of David is David's Lord. Now, how can that be? And by the way, in the Old Testament that most people use in the first century, uh, that word Lord is is just, when you see it in capital letters, capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. We traditionally translate it Lord in capital letters, but it doesn't actually say that. But... um, there's a descendant of David who is his Lord, and not only that, he's a priest forever. Even though he's a descendant, he's from Judah, he's, he's a priest also. And that was a very important, it may not have been bothering you as you were navigating your way here today through the fog of Atlanta, but for many people that was a problem, because God's word said the king is from Judah and the priests are from Levi. So what about Jesus? Well, Jesus is superior to those guys. His priesthood is better. For one, they were mortal. The high priests, starting with Aaron all the way down to the, um, you know, Annas and Caiaphas of the New Testament and the few remaining high priests before everything was destroyed, those high priests lived, they were born, they lived, they died. That is, they had to be replaced. Jesus doesn't. Second, uh, Jesus is sinless, he's holy. The high priest offered for the sins of God's people and his own. Jesus didn't need to offer sin, uh, a sin offering for himself because he was sinless. In fact, he was made perfect, complete, full, mature forever. And so Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. He's kind of an anomaly, kind of outside the system, but but definitely better than the normal priesthood, the priesthood uh, of Aaron or Levi, the Jewish priesthood. For some of you who've read the whole Bible a couple times, this is not new. I'm quite aware that for some, maybe you've not read the Bible completely, and this is very new. But according to the Hebrew writer, this is really important stuff. Well, a few words of application, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Firstly, I would give us all the challenge to understand what the Hebrew writer calls solid food. At the end of chapter 5, I don't think I have the, i just give you the reference here. Uh, He's been talking about Melchizedek up to 510. And then he says, you know, I'm afraid I might be losing you as an audience, as a listening audience. Because they wrote the letters, read the letters out loud. He said, it's like you need milk, not solid food. Solid food is Melchizedek. Solid food is how the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. It's not learning 10 Messianic prophecies, anyone can do that without maturity. But to see how the Old Testament shows us Jesus, that's exciting and that's deep. In the Old Testament, we learn about God. We learn deep things, deep mysteries, things that could really help us be stable in life. But if it's just milk and he makes this contrast, it gets old and boring pretty quickly. The milk he gives in chapter six, examples of the milk are, Repenting from dead works, uh, you know, it's faith, it's baptisms, and so forth. Very basic teachings. And so we need to learn how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. Don't listen to those preachers today who tell you, uncouple the Old Testament from your Christianity. And that is the trend in the Bible-believing fundamentalist world, the conservative evangelical world, for members not to read the Old Testament. It's like everyone is scandalized. Second, sometimes... The Lord has true followers outside our field of vision. People like Jethro, for example, people like Melchizedek, you you say, well, how did he get saved? He's a priest of the Most High God, and he's not condemned in the Bible. He's not from Abraham. I mean, in what sense is he a son of Abraham? That's kind of a humorous thing, you know, since they were contemporaries. But Melchizedek is right with God. Not only right with God, he's, the way he approaches God is a model that illustrates and parallels and justifies Jesus's own priesthood. Now, I'm not saying be wishy-washy. Oh, Melchizedek's an exception, so so are my neighbors and all of my family's ancestors and anyone I feel a bit weepy or sentimental about. No, (laughs) no, don't judge salvation that way. We have no right to tell people, well, I know you disobeyed the Bible, but I'm sure you're fine anyway. Who do you think you are, God? (laughs) We need to obey what the Bible says. However, that doesn't negate this truth that sometimes the Lord has true followers outside our field of vision. As in the case of Melchizedek and Jesus, God knew what he was doing. Let's trust him. Trust God's sovereign plans and design and bring others last to Jesus, not to ourselves. This little study on Melchizedek shows us how great Jesus is. I mean, not just great, but exalted and divine, majestic, majestic, This is our Savior. And the better we understand that, the more motivated we'll be to be in the Word and to be gracious, although uh, clear, not wishy-washy, to trust God and not to preach ourselves, but to preach Jesus, the only one who can redeem us. And so Melchizedek is an important figure in the New Testament, and he's the only priest you need. As we talk about the communion now, it's actually easy because there's a communion passage in the Melchizedek passage in Genesis 14. Here you can see a picture. That's an abbreviation. There, you can see Abraham, Abraham, here, um, here, and you can see Melchizedek offering him something. Because in Genesis 14 we read this. After, um, this is Abraham's return from that battle I mentioned. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Oh, like the ushers are doing right now. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him. Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That foreshadows the later custom in Judaism where people who owned land or had flocks Uh, Needed to give 10% of the agriculture or the livestock, an Old Testament uh, thing that does not carry into the New Testament where there is no limit. But Abraham gives that to Melchizedek. Melchizedek gives him bread and wine. That is a fascinating prefiguration in the Old Testament of communion and of the work of Jesus. With that in mind, we can pray. Lord, open our hearts. To appreciate the mysteries of your word, open our minds not to every thought or to idle speculation, but to the solid food which we're encouraged to pursue. None of us is mature as he or she wants to be. We all have so far to go. Help us not to despair, but to invest ourselves in your word. We thank you for the bread and the wine that show us who Jesus is, because they show us who Melchizedek is, that we learn of his ministry in the heavens, and that the gospel includes his death and resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Him we remember in these moments, amen.